Oh my gosh, Jolenta. I am so excited. Are you as excited as I am? Uh, yeah, I am very much excited. And listeners, do you want to know why Jolenta and I are so excited? I bet you do. It's because our How to Be Fine merchandise collection is available now. It is here. It is live at podswag.com slash befine. That's podswag.com slash befine. And Jolenta, tell our beloved listeners about some of the amazing things in this merchandise collection. Oh my gosh, we have so much good stuff. Truly, it is a feast for the eyes, the things we have available. We have a travel mug, so you can be like Kristen, always drinking out of a travel mug and reusing <laughs> a tea bag. We have a super cute tank top that says, just fine, because that's what we are. We're just fine. <laughs> and of course, Kristen, a collection of ours would not be complete without something for the animals, because... As you know, we love an animal in clothes here on How to Be Fine. So we have a nice dog bandana that just says animal in clothes. Yes, we sure do. Oh, it's my favorite (laughs) thing. We had a huge hand in designing these items, and we're so excited for all of you out there to get your hands on them. So order your merch today, again, at podswag.com slash be fine. And... Once you get your swag, we want to see you in it. Take your photos with your merch on and post it to our Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Kristen Angelenta. Or you can email us your photos, kristenangelenta at gmail.com. And if you just want to post your photos on social media, use the hashtag how to be fine pod. We want to see you wearing your swag, enjoying your swag. So get it. Again, you can find these items and more at podswag.com slash be fine. That's podswag.com slash be fine. Hello and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Jolenta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. In each episode of How to Be Fine, we weigh in on what's happening in the world of happiness, health, and betterment, and we offer a bit of advice to those who want it. Now, full disclosure, we are not psychologists or psychiatrists, but we are experienced self-help critics because we have lived by the rules of almost 100 self-help books for our other podcast by the book available in this feed if you scroll back. So needless to say, we've tried on almost every kind of wellness trend there is. And besides, we're not here promising to make all of you the best, richest, most optimal versions of yourselves. If all goes well, we'll just help you feel a little closer to fine. All right, Kristen, we have some great advice letters to get to later in the show. But first, like we always do, we are going to start with today's hot topic. What is it, Kristen? Tell us all about it. Well, today's hot topic is TV dining. Ooh. 
In other words, eating in front of the TV, having the TV on while you eat, consuming food while watching the boob tube. Got it. Got it. America's maybe favorite unhealthy pastime, or at least we've been told. (laughs) Indeed. It's a message that's impossible to escape. Eating in front of the TV is bad for us, they say. It's bad for our bodies. It's bad for our minds. It's bad for our family relationships. TLDR, none of us should do it. Right. But as you know, Jolenta, Dean and I love to eat in front of the TV. We love it so much that the New York Times recently included us in an article about couples who embrace TV dining. And when our listeners saw that article, many of them asked if I would be willing to make eating in front of the TV a hot topic. And when our listeners ask, we deliver. Yes, we do. So here's how this is going to work. I'm going to list some of the most prevailing negative messages we've been told about watching TV while we eat, and then I'm going to push back a bit against those messages. My goal will not be to convince everyone to eat in front of the TV if that's something that you don't want to do. You don't have to. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to try and paint eating in front of the TV as the greatest thing the most beneficial thing that all humankind should do. I'm not doing that at all, I promise. But rather, I just want to examine what's at the heart of these messages and if they're 100% true, because, you know, is anything really 100% true? Right, right. So you're not here to, like, shame my mom for always making everyone turn off the TV before dinner? No, no. Suzanne, do what you want to do, (laughs) Suzanne. I love you no matter what. (laughs) Perfect. So message number one is that watching TV while eating is mindless eating and that mindless eating is bad for our physical health. I'm sure you've heard this one. Right. Yeah, that's I feel like the message I got most as a kid. Like you don't want to eat in front of the TV because you won't even be able to pay attention to how much you're shoveling down your throat. Yes, yes. But first, I want to talk about what physical health means. If mindless eating Mm. is bad for physical health, what do we mean? As most of us who listen to the show or make the show are beginning to understand, health and weight are two different things. But when it comes to studies on TV viewing and eating, health almost always means weight. It means Mm. watching TV while eating will make you fat and you don't want to be fat, right? Because being fat is the worst thing in the world. That's usually what is meant when we are told that mindless eating is bad for our physical health. So I just wanted to get that out there. Health and weight are not the same. Unfortunately, though, this is a perception that we see in a lot of studies, from Harvard University in the U.S. to the University of Birmingham in the U.K. to research institutes in Asia and elsewhere over and over again. They tell us that when we watch TV while we eat, we don't pay attention to what we're putting in our mouths, and we eat more and we get fat. But Here is the thing. Other research shows that there's a difference between mindless eating and distracted eating. They're actually two different things. That's very interesting. I would have sort of equated the two. Yeah. So let me explain what I mean by that. A 2020 study by the University of Pittsburgh found that we tend to eat more when our food is not planned, when our attention is elsewhere, and when we're not being mindful of how or how much we're putting in our mouths. The study authors called this mindless eating and found that mindless eating does indeed tend to lead to more food consumption. Got it. On the flip side, though, 
there's what the Pittsburgh researchers called distracted eating. This is when we prepare and plan a meal or snack and then eat that meal while watching an episode of our favorite show or eating at our desks at the same time every day while we check our email or work from home. The study found that eating while distracted in these ways actually causes people to eat less. The difference here is in the planning and in the sense of purpose. In one case, it's just like, here's a bag of something and I'm just shoveling it in. Right. And in the other case, it's like, no, this was a planned meal. I'm eating it while I do this thing. And maybe I'm a little distracted at the same time, but that doesn't mean it's mindless. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, based on my own experience, I believe I would definitely eat more if someone's like, ooh, here's a surprise plate of cookies while we're watching this movie. I'd be like, yum, 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 yum. <laughs> Even more so when it's like the whole box of cookies, not a plate. Right? Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> but if someone's like, let's have a dinner and a movie date, I could see myself getting almost too wrapped up in watching the movie or conversing about the movie to like remember to take a bite. Yeah, exactly. Now, let's talk about message number two that I want to explore, Mm -hmm. and that's eating in front of the TV will turn our brains and specifically kid brains to mush. We've all heard this message. For as long as TVs have existed, we've been told the TV will turn your brain into mush. My nana was told this. My mom was told this. I think you and I were told this, Joel. Oh, yeah. My brain's (laughs) going to turn into mush and like leak out my ears. I added that part. But yeah, yeah. It rots your brain. Yes. And full disclosure, there are absolutely some studies that indicate this might be the case. For example, a 2022 study from the French National Institute of Health and Medical Research found a correlation between young children exposed to television during family meals and lower language skills on average. But I want to push back against this a bit because most of the studies that I've come across on this topic, and I've read a lot in the past week, do not factor in socioeconomic status. In other words, these studies fail to ask how many parents are working two or three jobs just to put food on the table? How many parents in these studies are burnt out at mealtime or not even able to be at home while their kids eat? How many kids are eating family meals only with siblings with their TV as their babysitter? Mm. And yes, it's true that language development in children has been shown to be higher when there's focused one-on-one conversation time between a parent and child. Studies in psychological science and other journals bear this out. But sadly, not all families can do this on the same level due to socioeconomic factors. So is it really the TV's fault when children are slower to develop language skills? Or are there other things at play here? Right. That immediately makes my mind run to the question of like, for all we know, is the TV doing a better job than silence in those cases when the TV like has to be the babysitter or just the entertainment because a parent is burnt out? Perhaps if there was no stimuli, there would be even less development. Like, we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, correlation is not causality. And there's never just one factor that we are in a vacuum with. It's not just me in this vacuum with one factor. There's always other things going on. All right. This leads us 
to message number three. Message number three is that watching TV while eating is bad for families. I don't know about you, Jolenta, but I have heard this my whole life, that families should sit down at a proper dining room table at mealtime. They should talk to each other. They should connect. They should make eye contact. There should be no TV. And why is this? Because supposedly... TV means we're not connecting. It means the kids will be eating junk food instead of vegetables, and it may even lead to juvenile delinquency. I have heard all of these messages. I've seen all these messages in after-school specials. There were even PSAs on TV for a while saying, turn off the TV and eat dinner as a family. I always loved the commercials (laughs) on the TV for turn off the TV. Yes. But um, I think like this is the reason my mom turns off the TV for dinner. Granted, our family fell to shit regardless, but uh, she still does it, even if it's just the two of us. She'll be like, TV off. And I'll be like, what? We can't finish the show or something? <laughs> These real housewives aren't going to watch themselves, mom. No, I'm like, don't you think we're just going to be talking about what Tamara does as opposed to watching it? Like, But she wants, she thinks conversation is important. And I think it's because of this messaging that like the TV is sort of bad for family interaction. Yeah, but... You know what? I have found several studies that contradict this. The largest, conducted by the University of Minnesota, Harvard, and Rutgers, studied 40,000 middle school and high school students. And what it found was that eating together is good for families, regardless of whether the TV is on or off. When kids eat with their parents, they're more likely to be eating well-balanced meals that are high in nutrients. They're less likely to smoke, use drugs, or drink alcohol. Their grades are better. And interestingly, the archives of pediatrics and adolescent medicine found that these benefits existed even in families that would otherwise be defined as troubled and not so well connected. Mm. And the study authors suspect it's because the togetherness is what counts, even when the connectedness is somewhat lacking. Wow. So just like physically being together for a little period of time helps. Yeah. Yeah. I also just want to note that the study authors found that in some cases, the TV actually improves the family meal because it can serve the purpose of bringing sullen family members, sullen teenagers to the table who might otherwise just choose not to be present or find a way not to show up. So it's drawing some family members to be together. Nice. Like, come on out, teenager. It's time for, like, dinner and succession. You don't have to talk to us about school. Just sit with us and watch the show. And then all of a sudden, they're all talking about succession. Or (laughs) insert any other show here that I don't know what teenagers are watching. I don't know if they're watching succession. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they are. Teenagers out there, let us know. (laughs) Now... Let's get to message number four. I am very interested in message number four, and I think our listeners will be too because of what the theme of our show is about being fine. So message number four is that watching TV while eating is bad for our mental health. It doesn't help us be fine. We've all been told that mealtime should be a moment to slow down, spend time with people we love, and savor life. Here in the States, by the way, we know a lot of our listeners are not in the States, but here in the States, we are often presented with idyllic depictions of the stereotypical European meal, which includes a dozen close friends or family members and multiple courses stretched out for hours while everyone laughs and savors each bite, sometimes on a cobblestone street or oh, a of beautiful course. little village house. Yeah, yeah. And there's always like a string of fairy lights above yes. them, like making yes. everything a beautiful yellow tone. Yes, 
And comparatively, we're told that the stereotypical American meal, eaten alone in front of the TV, is an isolating experience that takes us away from the community and joie de vie that Europeans enjoy. Mm. Is it no wonder so many Americans are in therapy? Just look at how they eat their dinner. Look at it, right. everyone. It's a sign of like being sad and lonely, we think. Yeah, mentally unstable, unhinged, isolated, right. yada, yada, yada. So first, I, I do want to say, while it's true that 27% of American households consist of a single person, the fact is that in Europe, that number is actually higher, with over <gasps> one-third of households consisting of a single person, according to 2017 data from Eurostat. Second, a number of recent studies from the universities of Buffalo, Miami, Ohio, and elsewhere have found that watching TV can be good for our mental health. One study found that subjects felt less lonely when viewing their favorite programs. Another found that just thinking about a favorite TV program buffered subjects against drops in self-esteem and against negative thoughts. And across all the studies, researchers concluded that a viewer's fictional bond with TV characters could help ease their need to connect with others. The study authors, of course, noted that turning one's back on family and friends for the solace of TV may be maladaptive and leave a person with fewer resources over time. But for those who have fewer social interactions because of physical environment, household makeup, and other constraints, TV-induced belongingness, as they call it, may actually offer comfort and benefits to mental health. Okay. Yeah, I buy it. I'm comforted <laughs> just thinking about the Real Housewives. Yes, and yes. like they are my friends in my mind. Yes, yes. You saw me when we met Luann De Lesseps from New York. <laughs> I was the most nervous I'd ever been because I was like, "Oh no! Like, is my friend gonna like me?" And yeah, I can see how like turning to TV instead of people when you have people as an option is maybe a sign of, like you said some maladaptive mental health things going on. TV's comforting. Yeah. So, Kristen, I feel like you have presented a lot of very compelling evidence as to why TV dining should not be vilified. But I am curious, why do you like it so much? What is your reason for being like unapologetically in the New York Times shouting from the rooftops? <laughs> Dean and I watch TV, but we didn't and we love it. Well, honestly, I just think it's fun to me. It's not that different from dinner theater. It's like mm. going to one of my favorite movie houses, like the Alamo, which serves proper right. meals and drinks along with their screenings. And I think it's interesting that dining while watching a screen is so often derided as trashy or unsophisticated when it's done at home. And yet it's expensive, very expensive no, and yeah. celebrated when we do it somewhere else. And to me, that's just plain classism. That's nonsense Shit, to me. You're that right. is classism. I'll also add that I've made some really great memories while watching TV and dining. Some of my best times with my friend Laura Kibler have been watching made-for-TV movies while eating Indian takeaway. Some of my favorite childhood memories include a VHS player and a pizza. And that one night that I watched The Breakfast Club three times on repeat as a little kid when I was way too young to understand everything that was in it. Or Saturday morning cartoons and breakfast sandwiches. I prepared myself. I, I loved making Monte Cristo sandwiches as a little kid. 
and then watching <laughs> those Saturday morning cartoons. Right. Yeah. And even some of my most memorable conversations I've had with my late mother and my nana or my niece and nephew have sprung from what we were watching on TV while eating. I, I'm talking conversations that maybe would be less comfortable if we were just staring into each other's eyes, you know? Conversations about sex while watching soap operas. Conversations about business and politics while watching The Bold and the Beautiful with my Nana and eating <laughs> her salad with her famous lemon dressing. Conversations that were just about what was funny to us, what made us laugh, what was enjoyable in the world. And I think those are all valuable things. I don't regret those memories at all. The fact that they involve TV and food, in my opinion, is not a bad thing. It right. just brings more of a sensory memory to me that it involves so many things. Yeah, totally. Like, I'll never forget one of my first sleepovers when I first saw the Goonies and we ate so much pepperoni pizza, a lot of us threw up. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And it's not just because of the throwing up. It's partially because, like, we had so much fun, like, getting carried away watching movies. Yeah. So how about you, Jolenta? How do you feel about watching TV while eating? Do you straddle the fence with your mom's thoughts on it where maybe the TV doesn't need to be on while we eat or are you more like me and Dean? Where would you say you fall on the spectrum? Well, when I am at home with my partner, Brad, we pretty much always have the TV on while eating. Either it's sort of a scheduled like, let's sit down and watch this show while we eat dinner or this movie while we eat dinner. Or it's, you know, even just Brad like needing to have an Angels game on because apparently sports are just always on and you can always have one on. <laughs> but yeah, so at home, pretty much almost always eat in front of the TV, sort of like you and Dean. And Brad and I have like a dining room table in the corner of our living room, but we pretty much almost always eat at the couch with the coffee table or our laps as our surface. But at my mom's, we do almost always turn off the TV. And like, I don't hate the conversation. Often it's about the TV show we just turned off. So like, it feels very <laughs> TV watching adjacent. So I don't think it's horrible. It always annoyed the shit out of me when I was younger growing up. And now I sort of think it's fun to do almost as like, it's tradition. We always do it. And like, it helps us connect, but I don't know if we are connecting in any deeper level than like when a show sparks a conversation that ends up being really deep, you know? Yeah. So I'm clearly all for it. <laughs> but you know what, Jolenta? I want to hear from our listeners. I yes. am so curious. We should put a poll up on our Facebook Oh my community. gosh. Poll time. Hop on that poll. Yeah. We want to know... Do you usually watch TV while you eat? Do you feel guilty about it? Do you avoid it at all costs? Share your story with us on our Facebook community. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Kristen and Jolenta. And of course, you can always write to us at Kristen and Jolenta at gmail.com. You know what else you can do with that email? You can send us advice questions. Why, yes, you can. And coming up, we have some advice questions. First, we'll hear from a letter writer who wants to talk about breakups. Hey, 
Hey, everyone. We are back with our first listener letter of the day. Jolenta, what do they have to say? All right. Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, when is a breakup or divorce justified versus when is it just selfish? Like if someone was being abused, we all know that leaving is totally justified. On the other hand, if a guy leaves his stay-at-home wife for his hot young coworker because his wife gained weight after having his three children and he refused counseling, I think we would all agree that it would be overall a selfish choice. But what about the spectrum in between? If one person doesn't want to break up and the other person does, how do you determine who should get the final say? In the specific case of a dear friend, she's in a common-law marriage. Both her and her wife have done their own counseling as well as couples counseling. They both love each other, but one feels her lifestyle goals will never align with the others and wants to leave. If she leaves, her wife will not only be emotionally heartbroken, but also financially destitute, even with alimony payments. Adding to the heartbreak, their child is old enough to decide where to live and would definitely choose to live permanently with the mom who is initiating the split. Oh, letter Oof. writer. This sounds like this is causing your friends some anguish. It sounds like it's causing you some anguish as somebody who loves them and who perhaps they lean on. It can be tough when people we love break up, whether right. they're our family or not. But I'm just going to jump in and say, when is a breakup justified? Anytime people want to break up. Yeah. There is not a rule that one person gets to say, nope, you're wrong. We're not breaking up. If a person wants to break up, that is a good enough reason to break up. It doesn't have to have something huge like abuse. It doesn't have to have something that they make a made-for-TV movie about on Lifetime. It can just be that one person doesn't want to be there anymore. It can be that one person doesn't love the other anymore. It can be that one person, like the case of your friends, right. doesn't see a future anymore with their partner. And in the case of your friends, it sounds like they've done everything on the up and up here. They've gone to a couple's counselor. Right. They've each seen their own counselors. It doesn't sound like anybody is being, as you suggest here, selfish. They have done things in the right way. And I, I know it must be hard for the one partner to know that their child will choose to be with the person who is initiating the breakup, but that's just the way it goes sometimes. And that's not a reason to stay. You right. don't stay with somebody because you're afraid of the repercussions. And I, I don't know where you live. I don't know what state or what country you're in. But in most parts of the United States, there's still the option of shared custody, even if the child wants to more days of the week, live with one parent than the other. In most cases, there's still the option of shared custody where the child can live, you know, a certain number of days here and a certain number of days there. It's not like the one partner will never see their kid again. It's still painful. I don't mean to minimize right. the pain or how tough it is to go through this kind of change. I'm not trying to do that. But I am saying that trying to force somebody to stay because you're afraid that your child won't live with you anymore full-time that's not fair to anybody. It's not fair to the right. kid. It's not fair to yourself. And then trying to make somebody stay, I also just want to say, maybe it's just the way I'm wired, but if somebody doesn't want to be with me, I find that super unattractive. <laughs> Why would I want to force somebody to stay with me? If you don't realize how fucking sexy and desirable and fantastic Kristen Meinzer is, you don't deserve to be with Kristen Meinzer. You don't get this. This package here, I'm the real deal, and you're missing out, 
And that's on you. You miss out on it. Goodbye. You say you want to leave. You say you don't want this anymore. Well, I no longer desire you. My libido just went into the floor and I'm never going to be able to dig it out again because that's how unsexy you became to me by not realizing (laughs) anymore how great I am. So that's my take on it, Jolenta. Breakups are always justified. You can't stop them if the person wants to leave. And in the case of your friends, they've done the right thing. But Jolenta, I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I agree with you that like a breakup is usually justified if at least one of the people's like, I really want to break up. And, you know, as far as the partner being heartbroken and financially destitute, like that is awful. And that is sad. I know they've done couples counseling, you mentioned, but maybe this is the time for sort of like a separation mediator. They can sort of help. Often, I know in my parents' case, when they got divorced, they went to mediation that was done by a pair that was a lawyer and a therapist. And you can find all sorts of ways to sort of navigate separating that make people feel taken care of, at least for a period of time. Every split can be unique. It doesn't have to be so cut and dry. Like Kristen said, it doesn't have to be sole custody to one parent. If the relationship is good enough, usually mediation can help sort of lessen the blow a bit and almost add like a personal touch to the separation. And it sounds like they did a lot of hard work. Your friend has done the work to try to keep the marriage afloat. And like, if that doesn't elicit the changes in the dynamic that they're looking for, like, then yeah, move on. It's not a good place to stay. And as far as the gray area, I think all separations have gray area. There are ones that are much more cut and dry that look really, really dark gray, almost black, or really, really light gray, (laughs) almost white. But even when it seems black and white from the outside, like with my parents, my dad like just royally fucked over my mom. He stole money from like the family savings account, invested it into failing businesses behind her back, literally illegal moves. And She left and was like, trust has been broken in ways that are irreparable. Plus, you've always been kind of a controlling dick. But like she still wonders if she was like justified in leaving him sometimes. And there are some people out there that are like, oh, he made one financial mistake and she peaced out. So, you know, like there's always a gray area. There are always going to be people on either side, even when it seems like no one should be on the side of the asshole. So don't worry so much about finding the black or white and just support your friend while she finds what works for her. And it seems like you're a very caring and supportive friend. So it seems like you'll be able to do that. Yeah. And as tough as this is, just a little bit of perspective here. This happens to millions of families around the world every year. People get divorced and people move forward in life. And divorce is not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's the first step to the next great chapter. And this could be the case for both of your friends. This could be the beginning of both of them being happier people and their child reaping the benefits of that happiness. Yeah, I agree. We are going to take another quick break. But before we do... We would be so grateful if you took a second to rate us and review us wherever you're listening to the podcast right now. It takes like two seconds. You just like look down, hit five stars, write a little ditty about why you like the show. That helps people 
find the show. It helps them know the show is legit and fun to listen to. So give us a little rating or review, please. Coming up, a letter writer wants to feel more positive. Okie dokie. We are back with letter number two. Kristen, would you read it, please? Of course. Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, I have a fairly negative mindset. I genuinely don't understand how people can be positive, look for the silver lining, etc. I'm trying to do that more often, and it is a challenge. When I talk, I enjoy conversing about negative topics, and I'm worried it will drive people away. For example, I complain about lots of things, whether that be politics or other people, and I like consuming negative content. For example, if I had to choose between two videos to watch, one titled Best Movies of 2021 and one titled Worst Movies of 2021, I would choose the latter because I would have a ton of fun listening to that guy bash those movies. I think you get it. So, How do I stop living in a cloud of negativity and deliberately exposing myself to it? How do I become like all those inspiring people who love life and care about a lot of positive, uplifting, interesting stuff? I'm talking to you, Kristen. Is it even possible or are all of you faking it? Such a good question. Sometimes I do wonder if Kristen is faking it. (laughs) (laughs) And I know her well enough to know she probably isn't. But sometimes you just got to wonder with those those happy people, those like jolly people. (laughs) Well, I just want to say first and foremost to this letter writer, I complain plenty. Jolenta, you have heard me complain. You and I were at a picnic a few weeks ago. I won't give details about the picnic, but you took (laughs) me aside at one point just to let me complain because you knew I wanted to complain. (laughs) We love a good complaint. And Kristen does too, even though she's one of the happiest, nicest people I know. Yeah, but sometimes it's fun to complain. I mean, I literally a couple months ago launched a podcast which is all about complaining it's called the daily fail and in each episode all we do is we look at the tabloid press we choose three dumb stories and then we talk about everything that's dumb and racist and sexist and stupid in those stories the whole show is just a long complaint. Every episode is 25 minutes of complaining. So <laughs> it's not just something I do at picnics with Jolenta. I literally do this right. because I like to do it in my spare time making podcasts where I complain. So I want to just get that out of the way. I, I think that some people think I don't complain. I absolutely do. <laughs> and also, just if you want to rewind back to earlier by the book episodes, you will hear me complain plenty. Tons of complaining. There's lots of <laughs> complaining in By the Book. That's under under extenuating circumstances, though. Yeah, yeah. I can get very, very grumpy. I definitely can. But as far as actually being cheerful most of the time, I admit it. I am, for the most part, a very cheerful person. And I know that some of that is just my chemistry. How am I wired? I think part of it is because of the coping mechanisms that I was taught in life. I give my Nana a lot of credit for that. My Nana's background is even more traumatic than mine, which Mm. by every measure of every psychologist I've seen, I have a very, very traumatic background. But I think I learned a lot of skills from my Nana about these are the muscles that you flex to approach this situation in a way that doesn't destroy you. 
this is a way to have fortitude mm. when you're faced with this kind of adversity. And my Nana really believed in flexing those muscles. I'm not saying being in denial. I'm saying that when I'm walking down the street every day, does it benefit me to only see the trash and the rats? Sorry, I know, Jolenta, you love rats. I do not. Shout out to the rats. <laughs> or does it benefit me to instead choose to notice how pretty the trees are looking, the songs of the birds, the neighbor that's across the street that maybe I can give a hand to while he is shoveling, you know? There are all sorts of things that I can look at in the world and maybe just feel a little bit better than if I was choosing to look at the things that bum me out. So, you know, part of it is just practice. Part of it is flexing those muscles. But again, to go back to what I was saying earlier, I think part of it also is how are we wired psychologically too? Some of our brain chemistries are not the same as other people's brain chemistries, right? Right, exactly. Jolenta, what do you have to say about this? Well, first I have to say, who doesn't love talking shit about bad movies? So, <laughs> like, I think that's just human nature. Like, we love to pick apart art, shared experiences. It's like a way to bond. I feel like that is completely normal. Yes. And I totally relate to you, letter writer. I love a negative topic. I love bringing down the mood with like a depressing <laughs> stat or quote to like just demolish a conversation, you know. But I also know that my focus is a little unbalanced. I tend to get so negative, I get stuck in a funk. And that's not good. And that's where you gotta try to sort of rewire some neural pathways and like habitualize noticing good shit too. Because like Kristen says, it's not like denial, but it's just sort of being able to notice the things around you that don't suck. And there are some things. And at first, for me, I am working on this personally in therapy, like you gotta force it. Something doesn't become a habit overnight. Like you've taken on this sort of point of view because it has helped you survive your life. It has helped you thrive. And only now it's just sort of starting to like not help as much. So you've built that up over a lifetime. It's not gonna boom, undo itself. So you gotta sort of build that other muscle up, that noticing good shit muscle. Maybe try, you know, for every two complaints, try to notice something good or not shitty and try to balance it out. Then maybe try to shoot for one for one and just see what it's like when you try to notice the good things around you. And the more you practice it, the more it will become habit. But like you might have to sort of make a plan for how to approach it at first because I've learned from experience, like just sort of knowing you should focus on the positive more doesn't help you focus on the positive more. It can be another negative thing to focus on, being like, I'm not fucking doing this right, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, don't beat yourself up because, like, you sort of worked hard to build up this habit, so it's going to take work to build up a new habit. So just try to make some sort of plan of action and, like, you're going to have to force it. So don't worry if you're like, it feels forced. Like, it will be. And I mentioned I was working on this in therapy earlier. That's another option. If you have insurance, if you can afford it, if you can find a place with a sliding scale, therapists are really helpful 
when it comes to building up new habits. That's like a big part of their job. They figure out why you're doing the thing that isn't serving you. And then they help you sort of come up with a plan or different things to try to build up a different habit. So if you're not in therapy letter writer, I highly recommend it. And it's really helped me with my sort of constant negative thinking. Yeah, therapy, it can be really great. Both me and you, Jolenta, we both had a lot of benefits. Love a therapist. From therapy, (laughs) yeah. And just one other concrete tip, something that you can put into practice right now at this moment, is pause. Every time something negative comes into your head, pause and think, what if I said the opposite out loud? What if I thought the opposite? Instead of, you know, you get a text message and you decide automatically like, oh, what the fuck did this bitch just say to me? Just pause for a second and think, what if I thought the opposite? Oh my gosh, this is a friend who I love. I presume that she always has the best of intentions. I am going to presume the opposite of this thing I automatically thought. I automatically thought this person was out to ruin my day. Just a second. Just pause for a second. What would happen in that moment if you thought the opposite? What would happen in that moment if you were saying those things to yourself as well? Because sometimes when we're being negative toward others and assuming the worst of others, we're also doing it to ourselves. So what if instead, when you're saying something negative to yourself, that sounds kind of like, oh, I'm the dumbest person in the world. What if instead you did the opposite? Just pause and say, I am the smartest person in the room. How would that feel instead if you did that? Just try doing the opposite. Pause and do the opposite. Maybe it'll make you laugh out loud. Maybe it will just remind you that maybe you're being reactive in a way that's not beneficial. Maybe it will help you to just change the way you approach things. I hope it does all of the above. But sometimes just pausing and doing the opposite can be a little exercise that can help bring us closer to positivity. Sway, so are you in my head when my mom texts me? <laughs> that is often what I think. No, it's not. But sometimes it is. I'm like, oh, what does this bitch want? How is this going to ruin my fucking day? And I'm like, she's just like sending me a fucking picture of a dog. <laughs> yeah. Take a minute. Pause. Force yourself to try try it a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Those are just a few of our tips. And we know our listeners have tips too. So listeners, share your advice with our negative person who wants to be more positive. Share those thoughts on Instagram or on Twitter at HowToBeFinePod. And that's it for this episode of How To Be Fine. Huge, huge thank you to our production team at Stitcher, our executive producer, Nora Ritchie, our producer, Chantel Holder, and our composer slash engineer, Casey Holford. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Jolanta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See you next week. Until then, stay fine. Stitcher.